Welcome to the Fire and Bones podcast, the conversation between two pastors over the text we are preaching this week. I'm Michael Crosswhite, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And I am Nathan Loudon, the pastor of Millwood Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. Follow the podcast, rate it, most of all, share this podcast with a pastor you know might benefit from it. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's episode. So this week is Easter. It is, yeah. The big, the big, the big day. <laughs> what this is, 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 is this is, the Super Bowl? This, is the Super Bowl. That's exactly what I was going to say. This is the Super Bowl of pastors, apparently. Um, I don't. I think in ten years, whether it's right or wrong, I don't think I've ever really felt that way. That this is the Super Bowl of the year for uh-huh. for preaching. And in in some sense, I do. Like I, I look forward to this week as um, uh, not just th- this year is interesting with COVID. We're doing a, a service outside, um, so I'm looking forward to it for a lot of ways that have nothing to do with Easter itself as a unique mm-hmm. week, but with some of the things that are coming with it. Um, but I don't know that usually that I'm just like um, this is a huge deal. I mean. Aside from the actual planning for what you might do, do you, in terms of preaching, is that a, do you, do you, are you looking forward to this all year or how do you think about that? No, I, but I do, I I go back and forth and I've, I've, before I've kind of been, you know, discouraging people from thinking of it differently. Cause I mean, truthfully, like the reason that we gather on Sunday and the reason that we preach is that we're preaching the resurrection. And so in mm-hmm. in some sense my sermon like i'm still preaching in matthew and so my sermon doesn't change at all mm. and mm-hmm. and i'm reinforcing that kind of idea that every sunday is resurrection sunday for us and mm. i even call it to the congregation resurrection sunday you know when we were talking mm-hmm. about easter and so i don't really you know refer to it as easter not because of any you know, dogmatic opinion or anything like that. But I just want to reinforce that we celebrate the resurrection every day and every, every day Mm -hmm. and every Sunday in particular, as we gather together. So in some sense, there's nothing to it, you know, in that, in that reality. But I also know that on this day, I typically will have people coming to visit their parents from out of town. Mm -hmm. Their, their Mm -hmm. mama's going to make them go to church with them. You know, Mm -hmm. um, we, we probably get some visitors, you know, that, that, ordinarily wouldn't go to church but i'd say that's that's not that as much as it used to be when i was a kid i think more than anything we get you know kids visiting their parents from out of town and this would be the sunday where they're going to church with their parents their parents are going to make sure that they're in church on easter and so they they can they have an opportunity or i have an opportunity to preach the gospel to people that may not hear it and may not have heard it before and may never hear it again and so yeah it's sort of unique in that regard uh, that you can almost guarantee your mama's going to make their kids go to go to church, you know, that kind of thing. So I think there there is there there is some heightened, you know, maybe awareness uh, on the part of the church for this particular day just because of the people coming. But that's yeah, about for, it, I think. for us too, it's like it's it's an opportunity to throw a, another and a different kind of evangelistic net 
to the community, handing out cards, inviting people. I, I, I still think to some degree maybe people are willing to, to try church on Easter um, more than other Sundays. I don't, I don't have a statistic to back that up either at our church or at the Gallup poll or anything like that. Um, but I think Easter still has um, kind of an, an idea to it. But listen, we, I think you and I were talking about this a little bit in the text this week that uh, there was a Washington Post article end of last week that came out and was reporting on the Gallup poll, which said that for the first time in statistical history in the U.S., that church membership in churches, mosques, and synagogues is collectively below 50 percent for the first time. And those stats go back to, I think it's the 20s or 30s, where at that time the percentage was like 70 or 75 percent. And so, and even more specifically, they mention the number of millennials connected to a church, mosque, or synagogue is in the 30s. 30%, 30 percent, 30, 35 or something. And so we're we're in that place now where the up-and-coming generation is way less connected to the local church on a regular basis, much less in any kind of membership in a church uh, than before. Uh, so I don't know, I'm hearing that. Maybe I'm thinking, you know what, maybe we should quit assuming everyone knows what's going on at Easter, <laughs> that it's... There's not kind of a recognition uh, to it that has any kind of draw to either a non-believer or someone who's not in the church. Yeah, yeah, it's it's difficult, I think, for even people that have been in the church for a long time to wrap their mind around the fact that people are not, on the whole, just walking into church anymore from off the street. Mm -hmm. You know, people move to your town and they investigate churches because they were from a church in their previous town or, or, or whatever. People church shop that way. But yeah. uh, and, and there's people that even kind of know, I really do want to go to church, but just don't, you know, get up the courage or whatever. And so they surf around on podcasts and then they figure out where they want to go and then eventually yeah. may stumble into your church that way. But there are right. almost no people that are just, you know, atheists and just all of a sudden decide one day, I want to go to that church. You know, I mean, that happens, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure that sure. happens. But it, yeah. it is comparatively rare to the generations before us. And it's difficult for churches to wrap their mind around the fact that if you build a big building or if you, you know, do this kind of, you know, landscaping out front, it's it's not going to attract the people off the street like perhaps it used to because there's not that general sensitivity, you know, toward um, mm-hmm. toward, you know, going to church. However, yeah. I do think, and, and this is, I think, borne out in a lot of statistics that, that, I, that I've read. I couldn't cite any off the top of my head, but um, that right. millennials and, and Gen Z are more superstitious than any generations that's, that's come before them. So huh. it's not as though that the, the people that are not finding church or are not going into church, it's not as though they're not spiritual, quote unquote, in some way, right. or that they're right. not sensitive or that they would rather be atheists. It's that right. they are seeking other alternatives and they're finding answers in horoscopes. I, th- I, th- I think I read not that long ago, horoscopes, uh, the searching for horoscopes and reading of horoscopes is, is at an all-time high. So, hmm. you, so you're talking about generations who are going and seeking answers 
to yeah. their future, uh, answers yeah. to all kinds of things. And I was talking with a friend of mine just just uh, today, actually, about um, a person in his town who is now preaching a, um, a prosperity gospel message, and people mm. are streaming to their church in droves. And mm. the main reason is because they're attracted to the sideshow where he puts his hands on people and claims to be able to read their future and tell them what God is telling them about their future. Gosh. And, you know, we, we were talking about, you know, I was telling him, like, people are really, they really do want answers about the future. Yeah. And the we as Christians and, and preachers of the gospel, we can't afford to preach the gospel only on Easter. I mean, it, it yeah. has to be an every Sunday we have to come back to this is why the gospel is important because truthfully yeah. the prosperity gospel is not that they promise too much they promise too little they they say mm-hmm. that all of your dreams and everything can be fulfilled on this side of of eternal life and th- one they're promising something that eventually you're going to die and th- those things are going to mm-hmm. be left behind but mm-hmm. they're also not thinking about how good it possibly could be in eternity which Jesus promises so all of that can mm-hmm. only be fulfilled in Christ and it's only after this life it's on the other side of death not this side and mm-hmm. so you know I-, I think we have to be able to assure people who are searching for those things that that you know all of the things that you're looking for Jesus is uniquely fulfills and mm-hmm. it's on that side of death not this side you know anything this yeah, side is short yeah I don't, I don't remember who said it but it was uh, the idea that the, the a lot of times people think that if the prosperity gospel isn't true then whatever else is left is kind of disappointing yeah but the you know, rephrasing the gospel priority as what it really is, which is absolutely underselling yeah. what God is actually promising. It's actually cutting you short by giving you a little, smaller, earthly, temporary version of what God actually intends in Christ for anyone who would come and, and receive it. That the, the gospel, the prosperity gospel, is giving you less than what God intends for you. I think that's so helpful to, to think about when you're talking through those things um, because you're right. It, it, it's evil, what the, what, they, what the prosperity gospel promises and putting it in the name of Christ. It's evil. Yeah, and, and it's, the, I've it's listened sad. to this. I listened to this guy's sermon the other day, and, I mean, he's one of many. Uh, and I won't even say his name, but I'm listening to this guy's sermon, and he's like, "If you want, um, if you are in need of a couch, why don't you give a couch to somebody? Why don't you pay for somebody else to have a couch, and hmm. then and then God will watch what God will do. God will give you a couch." And I'm thinking, hmm. are you really standing on a stage and telling people that God is about giving couches, Co- a couch, mm-hmm. uh, two thousand mm-hmm. years ago? He killed his son to absorb his wrath for us. And and then he raised him from the dead three days later. And we're talking about couches on Sunday? This mm-hmm. is preposterous. It's 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 yeah. a dramatic undersell. I mean, it's it's incredible undersell for what the yeah. gospel really actually promises. And I think, you know, it's, you know, I mean, it's really, I guess, for people that have eyes to see, you know, and the Lord has to open their eyes to see it. But, um you know, I, I, th- I think though I, I I come back to those things and I think about that Sunday morning, 
um, particularly on Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday, I, I might have, you know, four or five people, I don't know, who are who who are currently sitting under that preaching on a Sunday by Sunday basis. Okay, and so, so let, yeah. let me ask you this question. Do you do you plan to preach the gospel more specific more specifically and more clearly? Um that probably is the wrong question. But do you think you have a plan to lay it out there just more simple and succinct this week because of who might be coming than the weeks before or after Easter? Uh, I think my text lends itself to that uh, maybe a little yeah. bit more. And so okay. probably this Sunday it will be a little more succinct and and clear or whatever the theological tie-ins are not quite as deep as perhaps they yeah. they might be in previous weeks or they might be actually next week we're getting into Matthew 24 so you know it, it <laughs> might yeah uh, See, we, that's what I'm saying that's yeah. what I'm saying yeah, so, so just missed it, you know, uh, but not, yeah. not, not that you couldn't, you know, not, <laughs> not that you couldn't, you know, in Matthew 24, but, you know, I do think um, the text that I'm in this week will, will lend itself to one, there's not as much text to deal with. I've got, I've got three verses that we're, I'm yeah. preaching through. And so yeah. there's not as much text to deal with. There's not as many intricacies that have to be ironed out. And mm -hmm. so it lends itself to me being able to pull back from the passage a little bit more and say, let's, let's, you know, talk truly about what is happening here and what has happened and how that relates to you. And I think it relates in particular, uh, particularly well to the, you know, the unbeliever, the one who has sort yeah. of hardened his heart against the Lord. And so, you know, whether I'll have anybody there Sunday that is in that situation or not. I don't know whether there will be anybody that is in that situation and hears what I'm saying and the Lord just sort of opens their heart and to hear the gospel for the first time. You know, I don't know, yeah. but you can certainly hope for that, you know, and pray yeah. for that. Yeah, because I have, I've chosen to step out of Revelation and preach um, a, a message tailored specifically for Easter Mm -hmm. um, because I'm in Revelation. And to be clear, it's not because I don't think the gospel is on every page of Revelation. Um, we're we're going to be, our, our next sermon, if we were to begin just preaching, if we would just keep preaching through Easter, which I've done before, we would be at the first letter to the churches at the beginning of chapter 2. And, I mean, there's, there's gospel there. But there is enough context shift for that week. And, and we, I, we have encouraged our church to be about inviting people, particularly this week, maybe more so than other weeks. Um, and we're going to be outside. So during COVID, we're thinking that might make people more comfortable. Um, and so they're, you know, talking to the church in Revelation 2, a letter to the church in Ephesus, and having the sermon be about the one who holds the 
seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Even if you were there for last week's sermon, um, there's a lot of biblical context and language that you have to get through um, mm-hmm. for to see the gospel and, and to see it clearly, to see it simply. And so for that reason, I think just um, it just seems wise to take a break. It's actually a great spot to take a break in Revelation. We'll come back after Easter and pick up in the letters. Um, but this week we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, but just to just to preach a simple message about the cross and the resurrection so that anyone who comes, no matter where you've come from, no matter if you've been reading the Bible or have never read the Bible, um, you can maybe more easily than other weeks um, pick that up. And if someone were to accuse me and say, well, you just you should be able to do a better job at doing that every week with whoever comes, I will welcome that and say I would love to get better at that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't know. So do you think that's do you think that's wise to take a stop right there? Is that helpful? Is there other plus and minuses to that? I mean, I did it last year, <laughs> so um, uh, okay. You know, I, I've it it, it to, for me it all depends on where we're at. If we were in if we were in next week's text it, it, it happened yeah. by god's providence that we landed at the end of chapter 23 this coming sunday but right. we could have just as easily you know had other things happened or whatever you know been in chapter 24 and i probably would have paused just because there is there are so many uh obstacles you know in 24 that are you know, particularly nuanced for a person who has been a Christian for some time and, you know, wants to understand some things that, um, that are, are, you know, that the text brings up and that are particularly heavy or maybe thought provoking or whatever, um, that a person that hasn't grown up in the church doesn't have the context for. And so there are times I think, you know, yeah, you, you, back up and you say, wait a second, who, who am I preaching to? You know, um, and if, if, if I have the opportunity and I think there's a really good chance that we've got some neighbors here in our community that, that are not normally here, we've got some family members that are not normally here, and, you know, I have a broader audience than I've had before, well, I mean, yeah. if, you, if I just took you out of your church and I just put you in an audience and I said, hey, that room in there that you're going to be preaching to is filled with unbelievers. They've never heard yeah. the gospel before. They don't know anything about it. Then I'm doubting you would go to Revelation, you know, or yeah. if you did, it would be a very small section of Revelation that is abundantly clear and that you don't have the opportunity to lose a bunch of people in the weeds of what in the world does that mean, <laughs> you know, but right, right. you would, you know, there's a reason why there's several you know, verses in Paul's letters or John three sixteen, or, you know, I'm just, just thinking off the top of my head of like various, you know, verses that, you know, you can, you, that when you read, they're like abundantly clear. They are, you know, kind of your lifetime verses. They're your, you know, th- those kinds of ones that are just so sweet to you. There's a reason why those are are so sweet to you because they're abundantly clear and they present the gospel or they present a particular aspect of the gospel that's comforting. And, and so I think 
if we have the opportunity to do that as much as a day might afford us to, then take it. You know, I mean, why mm-hmm. not? You know, for mm-hmm. me, like I say, I'm in the end of 23 and, and I think it, I think it's abundantly clear and I, and I want to, you know, I want to present it and it helps. It even continues Matthew. So for me, it's okay. But you know, last year I preached John 20 out of John 20 after a series of videos that I did, I released on Facebook and YouTube of just, Mm -hmm. you know, going through the gospel day by day, uh, going through the Holy week day by day from Monday to uh, Saturday. And even that you, you probably wouldn't have done that unless it was COVID, you think? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I told people, I was like, you know, because I, I re-released them this this week to our church and just emailed them every day yeah. and said, you know, check this video yeah. out. And um, people have been, you know, responding to me, people in our church have been responding to me and just thanking me for it and things like that. And, um, and I, you know, it was weird. It was just like, I was just sitting there and I thought, well, I've got an iPhone. Why don't I just walk through the story every day, you know, and yeah. just put it on a tripod and started talking to the camera and it, uh, and then, you know, edit it and all that. That was all because I was at home with my computer. Uh, if I hadn't been, I would have been doing something else in the office. I'm sure, you know, but yeah, it was COVID. Yeah. 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 I, and you and I both have a pretty regular preaching diet that we are preaching through books of the Bible. And it's odd to not do that. Where do where does that come? Where do you think that comes from? Did you pick that up at DTS? By the way, Michael went to DTS. Um, <laughs> did you outed read a book? Um, what did you? Where did that come from? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was uh, was it was it Calvin who first kind of put the the Latin words to it. Um, the kind of continua, the regular preaching of the of the Bible straight through. I don't remember if it was Mm -hmm. him or not, but, um, you know, I think what was drilled into me in both in seminary, but how I grew up was these words really matter. And Mm -hmm. if you want to understand these words, you have to read the words before it, before this. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to understand those words, you got to read the words before those, because they're, words that while biblically while you know divinely inspired by the holy spirit and superintended by god um were written in the hands of men and you know or by the hands of men and so they have particular personalities that are present in the text they have particular um you know nuances to the way they're crafting their message and in order to understand that really you need to understand the context and you and so that was only further instilled in me in in seminary as well was just you know it's paragraph by paragraph it's line by line it is you need to understand in order to understand this you have to understand everything that comes before it too and the the passage cannot mean what it is never meant and so mm. you have yeah. to figure out what it has always meant first and what did it mean to the original audience? What was in the author's head as best you can tell it when he put that on paper as the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit obviously is superintending it. And once you figure that out, then translating it to a modern audience becomes a much easier chore and you yeah. get to the point of the text. You get you get right. And I think that it's easy to not do that when you just jump into the middle of a book and yeah. a middle of a passage to the point where now, I think, if I were asked to yeah. do that, I don't know that I 
I, I don't, I wouldn't enjoy it. I don't enjoy preaching series, you know, but, and that's yeah. probably why. Uh, it's always harder when I'm, when I, we, we actually every year do three or four weeks in January on our church purpose every year. And we just mm-hmm. revisit the church purpose. We preach some facet of our church purpose and it ends up being topical, right? It's, we're, we're taking this, which we we think we find in Scripture, but we're bringing it up. We're talking about it again. And it's always harder to me than just preaching through a book. I feel like once you get the book, every passage, before you even get to it, you, you already have you've, – you've already gotten to its main point in one, mm-hmm. in one way or the other. Uh, you're not starting from, from scratch. But I think, too, like – I I've seen it. I think I would have my own tendencies toward it if if I were not um it's easy to uh to pick the parts that are easy to preach, that are easy to understand and that are um uh most familiar to you, right? Um and when you do that, you end up it's it's so easy uh, for me, not for like those people, but for me, to leave out passages of Scripture that you might pick up on a given day and go, hey, Lord, should I read this? And you go, I don't even understand this. <laughs> how could I, how yeah. could I preach this? And you end up leaving out parts of God's, God's Word. And I think, not to, not to one-up you on Calvin, but Paul said all Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for correction and for reproof and for training in righteousness. So it, it comes from the conviction that the whole of Scripture, the genealogies in Genesis and Matthew 1, are Scripture um, from, from God and from His Spirit. I remember being at a Simeon Trust workshop on Genesis this last year, actually, and one of the guys in the group asked what I, I think is not an uncommon question. Um, I've heard the same question asked other times. You know, we were, we were in Genesis 11, and one of the guys goes, so you're, would you preach Genesis 11 to your church? Like, would you, is that a text that you would actually preach? And I just remember thinking, like, is it a passage that you wouldn't preach? Is it... <laughs> Is that a is that a thing? Like you have sections that you think aren't preachable, shouldn't be preached, and that doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't think that they're inerrant or that you don't think that they're scripture, but that maybe you shouldn't preach them. Uh, I want I want to be careful, um, but I remember hearing that, just thinking, brother, absolutely. Yeah, I can't think of a passage in scripture that I I wouldn't preach. Some of them are, um, you know more more study more in depth than others but um, and much harder i mean absolutely. if you if oh, you think absolutely. about if you think about preaching through the book of job i mean that would be a challenge i mean i it's i have a technical challenge it yeah. would be very because you you've got you've got uh job speaking and he you know depending on what job is talking about he might be saying things about god that are not true in particular that that you know that aren't God's intention. You know, he's, he's kind yeah. of, he's, he's ignorant of what's happened happening or who, who's causing the, the event yeah. to him. And, but he, he does know what's happening. And, and so he's, you know, he's ascribing motives to the Lord that aren't true. And then his yeah. friends 
are saying things that are kind of proverby. They're they're sort of they're gener- sometimes generally true, not always true, and and so preaching that preaching those things together is cha- would be ch- yeah. very challenging. You know, it'd be a, a really going, challenge. Going going back to Easter, I think I I mean to. I don't know if I've always said it, but when I'm preaching it when I'm just when I just preach through. I think we might have done that with Ezekiel or something. We just preached through. I don't remember. You know, I, I take time to say, listen, why why in the world are we talking about this passage this week in Easter? Maybe you expected to come hear something else or something more familiar or something simpler, not from some you know random Old Testament book. And I, it's a joy to say, listen, we just don't have any gimmicks. We don't pull out our Sunday best because it's Easter. We we preach through the Bible every single week. And this is where we are this week. So this is the passage that we're that we're reading. Mm-hmm. And there's I, I say that other times as well. People mm-hmm. I mean I, I think I've said that a couple times in Revelation. Uh, I know I said that a few times through Romans. We we believe that the whole Bible is God's word. This is gonna be a hard passage, but we think it's God's word and we think by his spirit and by wisdom and by counsel, we can understand what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there's there's nothing to avoid in Scripture whatsoever. I remember preaching through Ezekiel, though, uh, seeing that several commentators, maybe by some Bible dictionary, mentioned that uh, in Jewish community, the priests weren't even allowed to read Ezekiel until they were 30 years old. Wow. <laughs> I thought that might be a good practice for some guys. Uh, And I remember thinking, I'm over 30, so I guess this is okay. I don't know. Um, I think I would be asking, can we extend that maybe just a little bit? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I actually think it should be 40. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So, So then with all that, what are you preaching this Sunday? So I'm going to preach out of 1 Corinthians 15. Okay. And... I am going to take some time to explain 1 Corinthians. All 58 verses? or No, 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 no. (laughs) Um, I'll take some time to explain the book. Where does this book belong? What's Paul been doing for 14 chapters Mm -hmm. before this? And and why is he saying what he's saying here? Um, And I will say, I mean, I'll I'll do a real side note real, real quick. I remember being a couple of years into preaching and having already been in, having already preached through first Corinthians, the first book I preached at our church and under the conviction in the practice of preaching through books of the Bible so that I might have decisions every now and then in regards to the pericope that I'm preaching any given week. But it doesn't matter if I chop it off this week, I'm going to pick it up next week. Right. And I remember reading Spurgeon. He doesn't entertain, it, at least in lectures to my students, he doesn't entertain preaching through books of the Bible. When it comes to figuring out what passage of Scripture you're going to, to, to preach this week, his illustrations are kind of like walking through a garden full of beautiful flowers and praying for God to give you the right one. Mm-hmm. Um, or for finding a, a good, or, or like I think he said, like nibbling on uh, on fish food. Uh, you keep nibbling and nibbling until something hooks you, and it won't let you go. Mm. And I remember thinking, well, 
I'm not doing that. <laughs> that's yeah. it's not what we're doing. Uh, it's not what I'm doing, and I, it's not what I would train anyone else to do either. Right. Um, so, yeah, in 1 Corinthians 15, we're jumping in. I'm going to have to explain the book some. But some of the helpful language that came to my mind this week, and some of this just has to do with my own busyness uh, in the last season, it being COVID, us going outside. Uh, I'm going to take advantage of Paul's language. Can you say take advantage? I don't think you could say that. Um, <laughs> Paul's Paul's language well, you did. <laughs> of yeah, well, yeah. Well, here we go. Um, this is the thing of of most importance. I gave you the thing of greater importance. Uh, when I gave you the gospel, that Christ was crucified, uh, that he was buried according to the scriptures, that he was raised, that he was seen, and that this is the most important thing, that a lot of the time the church gets known for how they um, they get known for all the things Paul's been dealing with in chapters 1 through 14. Um the sexual immorality in the church looks just like the immorality outside the church, maybe even worse sometimes, chapter 5. Um, not taking care of their pastors, chapter 9. Um, getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, not not taking care of each other who are hungry, chapter 11. Having favorite uh, celebrity pastors in chapter 1. Being divided in chapter 1. Being immature in chapter 3. All, all these things, I think, are reasons people often uh, are discouraged from the church. They get in the church, they see the church act just like the world. That shouldn't be. It should not be. But I'm thankful that Paul's willing to call the the, the Christians in Corinth um, baby Christians, infants in, in Christ. They're in Christ. You guys just have a long way to go in sanctification. And then he comes to chapter 15 and basically says, of all the things I've told you, this is the most important thing. And the situation was that some had been doubting that there was such thing as a resurrection, and Paul has to argue, well, if there's no such thing as resurrection, then Jesus didn't raise from the dead. And if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then you are still stuck in your sins. And so that's the situation going on in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm really going to talk about two passages mainly. I'm, I have an abbreviated shorter time due to the uh, kind of um, reading and response and singing that we're doing this week. Um, so I'm going to hit two verses, um, that this is the thing of greatest importance, the simple gospel of Christ crucified for sinners, according to scripture, and go to the later verse where Paul says, listen, if Jesus had not died, then all of this is in vain. May as well go live it up and have a good time. And just really make the argument that the, the hinge, the linchpin for all of Christianity is that Jesus rose from the dead. So everything he ever said never did was true. And that's what Christianity is about. Um, in my introduction, I plan to speak to visitors or non-Christians first, right out of the gate, and just say, you might have heard that Christianity is about a political party. You might have heard that Christianity is about people being better people and being nice. Um, and on on like that and then just spending time to say that Paul said this is the thing of most importance um, so that's I really am not going to say much more than that because I think I'm only going to go 20 or 25 minutes in the mm -hmm. whole morning 
Man, I'm just getting started so at 20 it, or 25 minutes. <laughs> I know. I mean, your your introduction before you pray is 20 minutes. So yeah. Um, so yeah. So so I so I have a few questions that I that I, I think are interesting, and especially with with what you've said, and, and maybe some of this won't necessarily apply to this week, but um, but if you can think in general, it, it's probably helpful. Um, you use the term pericope a minute ago, and I, from my experience in using that term, there's not a whole lot of people that are familiar with it. And you're just talking about a slice of text, right? Like a portion of the text that you Yeah, I preach. couldn't tell you the, the Latin base understanding of that phrase myself. So. Um, well, uh that's clearly what we're talking about here uh is the <laughs> latin let's let's let me go back yeah. to the latin dictionary this is um, definitely our level of expertise right here latin yeah yeah <laughs> um uh, so but but i think the, the the question that i i get a lot is when i'm discipling guys and when we're walking through biblical texts and just helping them kind of see how the the uh, the author has divided the text naturally. And how do you do that? How do you look at the text and go, you know, these are, this is the, this is, this is a slice of the text here. Is that arbitrary or, you know, how do you, how do you do that? Yeah. Um, I don't think it's arbitrary. Um, I don't think the text will let you be arbitrary um, in terms of, you know what, I've decided I will preach this amount just because that's what I want to do. I think when we do that, you know, we can we can end up taking things that are narrower than the, than the point of the text or more general than the point of the text. Um, really easily by saying, you know what, I'm just going to preach Ephesians 1 through 3 in one sermon. Well, I think he could do that. I think he could preach the whole book of Ephesians in, in one sermon. Um, but I, when you do that, you can't say, I have made the points that Paul is making in Ephesians 1 through 3. Now, Ephesians, like you mentioned last week or week before, it's that's a great example of it being difficult. I think it's like the whole book's like eight sentences. Is that right? And so... It's, you know, where does it stop and where does it end? That's that can be difficult, but when you when you begin to see, I mean, even just simple things like uh, now this, and like as you're going through Matthew, then Jesus did this, and then he went to this um, geographic place, and this thing happened. Some of those things can depend on your genre. Um, you know, you're going through First and Second Samuel. Locations change the scene. Almost every chapter um, in Ephesians as an epistle, that doesn't happen. So there have to be other clues that say Paul has shifted to adding to what he just said or saying something different from what he just said. Um, you know, the book of Revelation, for example, in chapter 2 and 3, you, you read it a couple times and you'll see he has introduced the seven churches. He writes letters to seven churches. I've got a decision to make. I think I could faithfully preach one sermon on the seven letters, um, but I, I just think the danger would be if I don't slow down and preach every single uh, letter, then uh, we, we'll fly over 
much of what's unique in each of those letters. And so there's just there's all kinds of tools. So it's it's words coming into a paragraph, it's thought flow, it's the structure of the book, hmm. right? So my book has a, a rise and a fall. Ephesians has a, a first half and a second half, um, and putting those things together, go well. This this is a this is a unit that I can that I can pull out. Um, you know, you you see, for example, in First Corinthians 15, Paul's talking about the resurrection, and some of it is he gets to the to the chapter and he says, "Now I would remind you." He talks about I delivered these things to you, and he gives us clues that he's now talking about something different, and then the subject changes uh, going into chapter 16. So I don't know if that helps, but that's. Uh, that's kind of a yeah. lot of things, but the text that, I think often tells us more than me just going, "Well, how much can I fit in this week?" Yeah, and I I wanted to ask that question on this passage in particular because um, you kind of highlighted a couple of verses out of the sort of the beginning of the chapter, and yeah. obviously the the chapter of chapter fifteen is kind of notoriously the resurrection of Christ. And mm-hmm. you know Paul dealing with that, and and I've preached from First Corinthians fifteen on on Easter Sunday. I think it was the first hmm. Easter Sunday I came here. What, um, what year is that? Because I wanna I wanna go listen. Yeah, so that I, can... I think it's I think I preached on the la- the end of fifteen. I think it was fifty oh, okay. through fifty eight or something like that. Maybe fifty one. Probably 58. useless. Yeah, yeah probably. <laughs> um, but and it probably wasn't very good to be honest with you. But. Uh, <laughs> 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 but you know, obviously, I'm sure everyone remembers it. Uh, if you pulled the pulled the <laughs> congregation, they would. I mean, all... just ask if I could have some contact from your church members and just say, could you guys tell me about that passage that Michael preached yeah. two Easter's ago? I'm I'm studying that passage. Could you guys fill me in? Yeah, that the that odds, was the day. The odds would be that low. was the day we baptized everyone in the congregation, whether they needed it or not. <laughs> Um, so, uh, no, I, you know, um, the, but, but the point that I was, I was making was that, that, you know, what I'm looking for when I, when I look at a text is a completed thought. It doesn't have to be the, the whole completed thought that he's eventually going to get to, you know, that's what next week is for, you know, um, I do, but I do need a a completed, um, a completed thought and, you know, to, to give to the congregation to say, even even if, even if I'm preaching Paul's first point of three that he's going to make, I'm, I'm still wanting to present that, that point that he, that first point that he makes, it may be one of three, but that's going to be the main point of my text is that point that he made. And then next week is point two. And the week after that is point three. Or if you're preaching the book as a whole in one Sunday, you can still do that expositionally, right? I mean, you can still look at, here's what the text is saying and here's how it builds to the big point or the big couple of points that is the reason Paul wrote the letter or whoever wrote the, the, the book, you know, and it's, it's the intention of the sermon really is to get down to the point or a point that the the author is intending right and and so i would say I, you know i i would probably argue that to some extent 
it's a little arbitrary, right? I mean, not arbitrary in the sense that it can just be anywhere you want it to be, but but arbitrary in the sense that I could preach just the first point that he makes here, or I could preach all the points that he makes here. Right, but, like the the woes, for example. You you could yeah. take every woe and preach one sermon on each one. Right. You or you could, like be, I did, I in one sermon, I you know I grouped. Uh, I grouped them by twos until I got to the last one, and that was another point on in and of itself. But you could preach them by twos, I think, because yeah. I think that the woe one and woe two are a completed thought, and mm. woe, you know. But but then, how do you balance that against? You know, because you picked kind of, well, I don't know exactly, like if you're going to read, are you going to read verses one through, I don't remember where you stopped, but. No, um, no, like usually the sermon text is read right before I preach by a member mm-hmm. of our church. And then I come up to preach it this week. I'm just going to step up and preach. Okay. And when I say turn to your Bible, that'll be the first time they knew that we're going to be in First Corinthians 15, unless they looked at the worship guide. Um and so then so, in your worship so, guide, let's say, is it going to say 1 Corinthians 15, 3, 7, or yeah. that, that kind of thing? Pro- probably, it'll, yeah, it'll just have the short passage that will be the main point, so 3 through okay. 5. Okay. So then, so you picked 3 to 5, and then, like, if you, if you go listen to a random John Piper sermon, he's likely to read a verse or maybe maybe— 15 verses and then go and preach on a handful of words in that 15 verses. Sometimes he'll preach Mm -hmm. the whole 15 verses, but sometimes he goes back, especially in like his Roman sermons and will preach like one word. And they may be on, they may be on Romans, you know, 10, one to 11 for eight weeks in a row. And he's going phrase by phrase through 10, one to 11. Now, what, what, what can you, why is it that he's doing it that way and there are other people that are looking at um you know sections of the text and preaching the whole section at one time is that biblical what he's doing or like how do you think of that i don't know but i i mean i think piper preached romans in like 300 sermons 250 sermons that might be a conservative estimate (laughs) yeah i mean he, he was up there in the historic levels of length of Romans, uh, years mm-hmm. of Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and things like that. Um, so I I think that what Piper did there, I haven't listened to obviously all of those, but I don't think that Piper preached that way through all the books. And I certainly haven't. I haven't done one sermon series even close to that. Um so I think that, it, and and having just preached through Romans, I can see how you could take that as an opportunity to turn one word into a biblical theological sermon about that word and its use in this sentence and how that, what that means in relation to the rest of the whole of Scripture. I could do that e- easily, right? You, you, you take up sin and grace and even these the, the common words in the gospel and in Romans— and what does the word sin mean? Well, we're, we're, we're going back all the way to the beginning of Genesis now. Um, and you could take your time and do that. I, I think when it comes to the description of Christ that I could have taken uh, each of those elements and preached a sermon on them. The flaming eyes, 
the burnished bronze feet. I think each one of those could have been their own biblical theological sermon uh, to introduce another phrase, just showing how what 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 is this saying about Christ through the whole of Scripture, and what does that mean? Um, I, I think you can you can do that faithfully, um, but I think some of those decisions have to do with your people and their bandwidth and your audience this week and. Um, that those kinds of things come into play, do you mm-hmm. think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and with Piper in particular, it seems like he, if you if you really pay attention to where he's where he lands on every every sermon, really, at least you can tell he's trying to anyway. That he gets to what Paul was intending when he wrote that down, and you can see that yeah. as supported by the rest of the text around it. And, yeah. you know, he, he's kind of, it just happens that Romans is so theologically packed with so many things that yeah. he chose to cover all of them as best he could. But you know, and, something else, you know. too, I think Piper may have more confidence in being able to um, take a really small amount of text and, like like you just said, and... And do it well without bringing all of your exegesis into the pulpit. I think my temptation would be to turn into talking about the details of the text to, that get to the point of this text without kind of just uh, without bringing too much in at one time. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you can tell he's he's obviously. And he he'd obviously been doing it for a while when he started Romans anyway, you know. So obviously, yeah. obviously there's some you know he he knows his congregation really well, and and they had he knows they have the bandwidth to kind of handle that, and he'd obviously train them on on the preaching method. But I, I ask that because um, you know you're you're taking these these couple of verses and really driving home of those which i what i gathered was basically three through five for i delivered to you as of first importance what i also received that christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures Mm -hmm. and then he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures um and that he appeared to cephas into the 12th so are you gonna are you gonna go through three through five and and like kind of almost phrase by phrase make points like that or are you just going to kind of pull back and read it once and then say, here's what we believe as Christians, present essentially the gospel and be done? Is that is that which Yeah, no, I have a I have a couple of minutes on each section. Mm. So deliver to you of first importance what I received. This is priority for Paul. You we're we're gonna keep wrestling with church membership in the Lord's Supper and those things. But the matter of, is the resurrection true? Did Jesus really raise like that is the most important thing. Hmm. And then, so talk about that for a moment. And then Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. What does that mean? Why is that important? I think most of these things are, um, they're, they're not some of the language like we get in Ephesians 1 through 3, for example. But I'm going to explain them and preach them a little bit by a little bit. And then as just kind of an additional, it's kind of like Paul saying the same thing, the, the matter of first importance. I hear him picking up that theme again later 
when he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to most be pitied. I, I hear Paul saying in that sentence later what he's saying in the first section, in verse 3 anyway, that this is the first importance. If this thing isn't it, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead after being crucified for our sins, then none of this is anything. Mm-hmm. This is not, This is all nothing. You're still dead in your sins. Jesus is still dead in the grave. Nothing matters. So I, I'm really only preaching 3 through 5, but I plan to pick up that phrase because I think it's such... It's a it's such a simple standalone phrase that connects to the main point in verse three that I feel like I can pick it up and no one's gonna go, Well, where in the world did that come from? Right. He sure made a bunch of connections. But the, you know, yeah, that, that sounds like importance talk. That sounds like he's saying the same thing. So I I plan to kinda of pick that up and grab that too. You know, knowing that this is the chapter where we could talk about the differences between Christians and Mormons on what it means to baptize the dead. <laughs> and there's all kinds of things in this chapter, but there's no way we'll get close to those this week. Yeah. So so then when you do that, are you do you have in mind we talked a little bit about this already, but do you have in mind a certain person that you're mainly gonna be preaching to when you're up there? Yeah, I think the I mean, both. It's Christians and non-Christians. For uh, for non-Christians, I'm definitely preaching in a way that will make this extremely simple, hopefully simple and accessible. Um, and for Christians as well, the encouragement of the simplicity, right? We're, we're gonna t- we're gonna be taking a break from flaming eyes and bronze feet and uh, that vision and revelation and. Our Christians, our church members this Sunday, we're just going to hear about this being the most important thing. And I think it will be encouraging to them. Um, uh, so I have, I have both believers and unbelievers in mind. Um, I think, though, that the way that I'm preaching is primarily geared toward unbelievers and that hearing about the simplicity and the importance of the resurrection will be encouraging to those who believe in Christ just by way of hearing it and believing it again and being renewed in their faith uh, for hearing it this Sunday. It so is, that's kind of what I'm thinking. It's interesting that, you know, I think when you go into the pulpit, tell me if I'm if I'm the only one that feels this way, but you're always preaching to somebody, you know, but it's the yeah. categories of people that change. You know, there might be... A, a day where you're preaching like you are this week to believers and unbelievers. Whereas another week you might be, I mean, especially in revelation, you might be preaching to with the premillennial in mind and the postmillennial in sure. mind, you know, yeah. or you yeah. might be preaching like the, the categories of thought, you know, in your mind change. And probably, mm-hmm. I mean, tell me, tell me how you feel about this, but it seems like there should always be the category in there of the unbeliever, like should always be kind of, even if it's a smaller portion of the text, since most of the sermon is going to be obviously for the believers on the whole, on most Sunday by Sunday basis, but, um, but that there should always be that category in there of um, that there could be an unbeliever. How does this apply to them? Is that true? You feel like? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. And, most Sundays, 
uh, I don't know if I'd say most, but a, a good amount of time, I will stop and say, if you're here today and you are not a believer, uh, usually toward the end of the sermon or the beginning where I'm introducing or concluding, you know, if you're not a believer, this is what this all means for you. Hmm. And say it explicitly. If you're a Christian, think especially like this. Hmm. And the letter to the, the funny thing is about 1 Corinthians 15, it's a letter to people who think they're Christians about the resurrection. Right. It's not to people who are n- claiming to be non-believers and Paul's defending the resurrection. It's Christians who are saying, we believe in Jesus, but we don't believe that he actually rose from the dead or that there is such a thing as a resurrection. So I think the, the text sometimes will push your hands a little bit one way or the other as well. Uh, for example, John is constantly walking us through these narratives, and at the end of every narrative in that gospel is some believed and some didn't. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a begging question, do you believe or not? Mm-hmm. So it's constantly landing on a decision and um, kind of to anyone. Um, but these letters and Revelation, for example, are written to the church. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think, um, I think I answered your question. I tried to, that we ought to think that way every week. Um, but we, we have a kind of a challenge in that some books are specifically written to the church yeah. um, about church things, you know. Um, so to talk to the unbeliever is kind of like, almost like talking to someone who's listening in on your conversation Yeah. Uh, at, at the family table yeah. and saying, so here's what we're talking about. Um, because I, I do think preaching is primarily uh, to the church every Sunday, gathered yeah. for the preaching of the word to grow. Yeah, I mean, there, I know, there, what do you think? there's times where I think to myself, yes, I want to be preaching to the unbelievers because there's a a pretty decent chance in the church of in America that the unbelievers in some cases, some unbelievers are members of your church. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they, they, they believe they believed out of convenience and, you know, they don't really want to be there. And every week you're, you're reaching them to some degree. And I think it would be foolish to assume that every person in our church is truly a blood bought Christian and is whose satisfaction is Christ and Christ alone, uh, who would describe Christ as their supreme treasure. Um, I think that would be it would mm-hmm. be foolish to assume that. And, yeah. and so you, you should you, you should always be, you know, have that in mind, if nothing else, then to even kind of evangelize, as it were, as odd as it sounds, yeah. members of your own church. Yeah. But then, yeah. you know, I, I also think that even in the text that you you pick the one one reason why I'm really intrigued by it, and I think is really interesting is um, there's been so many times I've gone back to this thought that Paul expresses, and I've I've re I've told this to Christians before, you know they're they're going to school or they're going to work or they're they're talking with a coworker, and the coworker brings up things like Jonah or the Noah in the Ark or things that are mm-hmm. di- more difficult to understand or more difficult to believe. And I've taken the Christian aside, shown them passages like this and said, look, Paul's telling us if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, none of it matters. Okay. Mm-hmm. So did he rise from the dead to which they usually respond? 
Yeah, he rose from the dead. Okay, well then, if a man 2,000 years ago died like it was dead, dead, and then three days later, he physically got up from the grave, Jonah and Noah is now on the table as possible, right? <laughs> because yeah. because yes. once yeah. that happened, then we have to acknowledge we don't live in the kind of world that we thought we lived in, right? You look yeah. around you yeah. and Noah's Ark doesn't happen every day. And Jonah yeah. and the great fish doesn't happen every day. Uh, those yeah. were once in a epic kind of yeah. times, right? Yeah. And I have to acknowledge that because I believe in a resurrected son of God, physically got up from the grave that now Jonah and Noah, I mean, that's kind of not to put too fine a point on it, but it's sort of child's play, you know, when it comes to believability, mm -hmm. because once you Or believe, like if there's a little boy that went to heaven and sat on Jesus's lap with rainbow horses, <laughs> like, like that would like, we don't need that necessarily. We, we don't need that kind of testimony to, to believe. Is that what you're yeah. saying? Yeah. I mean, because yeah, Paul is saying. Have you ever here, read Heaven Is For Real? I have the not. Colton Burpo. Story? And I will I read not it. read it. On principle, I will not read it. <laughs> what? I will not. <laughs> you book Nazi. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Burn it. You're a Christian no. Christian book Nazi. <laughs> oh man. No. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I read it, so I have authority to talk about it. <laughs> well, I, I say that in jest, you know, like I, there are people that are really intrigued by those stories. And I'm like, guys, yeah. just think about it for a second. Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15 that he, and he even says in the passage that you've selected here, the verse yeah. five, he appeared to Cephas, but then he goes on to list all the people that he, that he appeared to and to Paul yeah. himself and to 500 others. So, yeah. you know, the proof of the resurrection is there. It's in 1 Corinthians yeah. 15. And Paul's saying yeah. this, and this is the beauty of it, and I, I think Vody Bauckham was the first one to kind of put these this really into fine words, you know. Um, but when he says that the Bible was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses, and and yeah. those those two phrases are really key, you know. I mean, he, we're talking about Paul who saw it, and that's what he's saying here, you know. Like the resurrection is yeah. true because I saw it, and if you don't believe me, there are five hundred other people out there that you could yeah. ask that are and I do, most of them are still alive. I do already have a like a two minute section on that on that sentence that basically says. This is what Paul's saying by this, and therefore, this is what Paul's saying about what the Bible is. And there's a couple other. If you're interested in learning more about what the what the the, the historicity and the the credibility of the Bible, here's a couple other books for you yeah. uh, to consider um, because what Paul's saying there is so important. But you're right. The resurrection. It makes me think about. I think it's Luke 16, uh, Lazarus and. Uh, the rich man die, and mm -hmm. at the end of that passage, Jesus says, listen, um, if they're not going to believe uh, Moses and the prophets, they will not believe if a man raises from the dead. Mm -hmm. if, if, this, if, this, if you can't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, the entire Bible is entirely unfeasible. Mm -hmm. And the same goes for the book of Revelation. If you get excited about things in Revelation, but you're not excited that Jesus rose from the dead, you can forget it. Like, what's the point? It, it it means nothing, and we and we don't even know if we can trust it. Yeah. Right? Why give your life to that? I'm, I mean, he really yeah, did rise from the dead. So but many there's people. So much, I think the reason I picked First Corinthians 15 is because it's just 
it's all that really quick in a couple of short passages. Mm-hmm. So that it fits really my is. time and my, my my time and my audience for this Sunday to get in, preach the passage. It's not 14 verse. I mean, the chapter is long, but that section just it puts it together real quick, uh, so that we can get in, pick it up, hear it. And move on. I, you know, I'm uh, so like, uh, which is kind of the design of the of us talking together is like now I'm really excited. I want to preach your passage, but, but you know, which is not even the book that I'm preaching through. Right in my mind, I have just this picture of a person just dying on their bed of like you know terminal cancer, and. Think of the encouragement if you were able to, you know, grab them by the hand and tell them, guess what? You're healed. Like, this is not the end. This is only the beginning. Just wait. When you close your eyes. Are you trying to passively passively aggressively tell me how to begin my sermon no this week. i'm not i'm just like <laughs> this is the thought that is coming to my mind yeah, as we're absolutely talking. man is, is I'm, yeah. as i'm thinking like can you imagine the encouragement if somebody really believed it like if you told them they had never heard this before and they yeah. really believed it when you said two thousand yeah. years ago there was a guy that rose from the dead and i promise and you that, and, and he lived again and the, i promise you yeah. the same is about to happen to you do or you, yeah, if you found someone dying with cancer, we just found the cure. Yeah, we just we just found it. Yes, after hundreds of years. We just found it. And not only will you will you be healed, but you will never yeah. get sick ever again. And yeah. you know, if you can imagine that rush of joy that would just yeah. wash over a person who realized they're about to get up from the cancer bed. You know, I, so it makes me think then that one of the biggest problems that uh, for our lack of enthusiasm about these two, three verses is that we don't think we're dying. Like we spend so much time trying to prevent death from happening, you know, hiding in our homes or, you know, being concerned about this or being concerned about that or trying to, you know, eat organic chicken and blueberries for the rest of our life, you know, whatever, that, that we are you know, focused on staving off death. Well, that's not going to happen to me, but the person who is about to die to receive news that they are going to live. I I mean that, you know, so it seems like, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like one of your objectives would have to be helping people realize in those precious minutes that you've got their own mortality, you know, you're going to die. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to die. And so here is, the news. Imagine how this feels, yeah. you know. Um, Let me go back and rewrite it all. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I clearly, get t- as I, you have gotten excited about this, I, I, I'm trying to love lost people. I love Easter, so I'm preaching First <laughs> Corinthians 15. You're preaching Matthew yeah. this week. Um, why did you decide to stay in Matthew, and what's your passage about? Because, well, to answer your the first part of your question, the reason I stayed in Matthew is because we get this snapshot right at the end. Jesus has just given these seven woes to the Pharisees and Sadducees, or well, really to the scribes and Pharisees. Sadducees aren't mentioned, but they would probably mm-hmm. be included in this as well. And he, having just done that, 
he comes down to 37 and 30 to 39, which is a continuation of the previous passage. And he just, his heart, you can hear in the text, his heart is broken. You know, it doesn't change any of his woes. It doesn't change his proclamation of judgment. In fact, he's about to right. strengthen it. But mm-hmm. but you can hear the brokenness in his, you can almost hear it in his voice and mm-hmm. in his plea to the hard-hearted to believe. Mm-hmm. They've rejected mm-hmm. him. They've rejected everyone that's come before. And he is telling them, here's the deal. Uh, I'm leaving. And mm-hmm. you're not going to see me again. And by that, mm-hmm. I think he means the Lord in all that that yeah. means, the Trinitarian God. You're not going to see or yeah. experience the power of God. Um, and, and, and I'm done because of your hard-heartedness. And that's not going to change unless you repent. And I think, and, yeah. and so I think that message to, you know, any unbeliever that may be there is a, is a, uh, allows me, the preacher, to preach what Jesus is preaching, um, that, mm-hmm. that y- you must repent and believe. I am here as a messenger to you to tell you the good news of the gospel, mm-hmm. but you, mm-hmm. must re- you must receive it. You must repent and believe because Jesus is as compassionate and broken as he is over hard-hearted people, and that he takes no delight in the death of the wicked. He, mm-hmm. It doesn't change his proclamation of judgment. You know, yeah. so I think it aff- it affords just a great opportunity to plead to the audience to believe and to receive the gospel with joy, which I think is his yeah. his intention. Yeah, yeah. The it it seems too like I mean, what a different t- the contrast in tones. I guess that's the European emphasis. The contrast in tones, but <laughs> from the the woes to the um, the brokenness. The brokenness is probably the, the the wrong word, but his his sadness over unwillingness to come. It's an incredible contradiction uh, or or contrast, I should say. Yeah, juxtaposition. And, yeah. Yeah. So vehement yet so tense. It's like it's it's helpful to me to see it put together like that. And I don't, I've always I haven't realized until you just described it that those two are one man. Mm-hmm. That he is this way toward the Pharisees and he's this way toward Jerusalem and he's both at once. And that that's it to me. It's just like isn't that the character of God? Yeah. He is he is just and will judge. Yet he is merciful, and has provided salvation if you will come. Yeah, and it, it it displays this this um, the complex emotions of you know a divine savior. You know he uh, you know a lot of people ask and wonder at verses like I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and yeah. they think well you know here God is judging and he's you know, just opening up the earth and swallowing whole people in Korah's rebellion. And, you know, throughout the Old Testament, there's just seemed this wrathful, vindictive God that, you know, they kind of depict as, as that people describe as, you know, capricious or whatever, however they want to malicious or however they want to describe him. And yet then he says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And, 
the reality is presented in these three verses that his woe is sure and true, and it's based on fact, and it's based on a hard heart of the Pharisees and Jerusalem as a, as a whole. But at the same time, he is also lamenting over that fact. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings mm-hmm. and you are not willing? And, yeah. and it doesn't change his proclamation. See, your house is left to you desolate. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. at all. But, but it, it, it also should, should tell us that he will receive you in repentance. There's no question about that. He will receive so you in this, repentance, but he, but he's still, he's, yeah. he will still judge. Go ahead, sorry. Does this set you up for the conversation that we had a couple of weeks ago with another buddy about the simplicity of God? Because you just said this is the complexity of God, and I don't disagree with what I think you were saying there, but did you read Dane Orland's Gentle and Lowly? I have not. That it's been recommended discussion. to me like four times. You this don't week, even read. So. I don't know. You don't read books. I, I don't, don't know. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I don't think I finished it. I can't remember. I I got pretty close to the end if I didn't. And he, but he wrestles with the simplicity of God, that God is not kind of yin and yang. He's not at war with himself. Right. And yet, his desire for grace and mercy kind of rises to the surface. Those are not his words. Um, do you... So you brought in the word complexity. What would you mean by that? You don't mean that God's one and he's conflicted within himself, that he's kind of at war inside. What did you mean by complex, and is that something you plan to address? It's complex to it us. I don't think it's complex mm-hmm. to him at all. Um, but we look at... at at God, we see, you know, lo- we see loving, we also see just, we see merciful, but we also see, um, you know, righteous and holy. And I, I think, you know, there, there is a simplicity to that in that everything that he does is not capricious, capricious. nothing, nothing that mm-hmm. he does is, that he is, he's not fickle, that everything that he does throughout history as recorded for us in the, in the scriptures is, um, based on, uh, fact, if you want to say it that way, I mean, it's, it's based on, um, truth. And so there's nothing about him that is, you know, complex in that regard. Everything that he does is based on, uh, truth. And, and, Mm -hmm. but it's also fueled by everything that he is, his Mm -hmm. love, his holiness, his justice. And Mm -hmm. anytime you have the completeness of character, like you find in God, it's going to come across to us as difficult to understand because he is, while he is close to us and near, he is also, as I think Carl Barth put it, holy other, he is, he's also Mm -hmm. a part and and we, um, it, it's you know it's difficult to understand the mind of God and the way it works. And mm-hmm. so in that sense, to us, it is complex, you know, in mm-hmm. in some capacities. I think. But um, so if I'm yeah. at, if I'm at your church on Sunday, and I'm like, well, which is he? Is he woe to you Pharisees, or is he man? I wish you guys would come. 
is he you're all going to hell or is he here's a drink of water which one is he if i'm just a someone showing up at church this week asking that question because you you brought up the subject of complexity how would you answer that to them i think the answer is yes and i think what we're seeing here in in matthew in not disagreeing matthew, yeah i think the answer is yes in matthew 23 we're seeing that those two ideas are not well maybe not all the way that you described it in the second half but those two ideas are not opposite one another that you can be you can you can land on the truth and you can lament over the fact that that is true um yeah so and and you know i think you, know, you 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 can see even people do this with their own children sometimes when their children run away into sin and mm-hmm. you know they have to te- they have to sit their kid down and say this is where you are and i don't approve mm-hmm. and they never you can see that they never you know capitulate to mm-hmm. the worldview of their kid and they realize mm-hmm. that their their child is going to hell but mm-hmm. that's not a comforting feeling even though they've landed on truth, it's still, it is, a, it is a, the harsh reality is that the, the, what sin has done to the world is completely wrecked the human heart. And, um, and if not for the spirit of God reviving it, then mm-hmm. it is dead entirely. Yeah. You know, it, and it's strange. I, I've used this in counseling a lot, and please don't tell me I'm wrong because I've used it a lot. So, um, but we're we're capable of feeling a lot of things at one time. We we can go to Christians especially can go to a funeral and feel joy. Um, when the women leave the tomb in Matthew 28, they they run full of great fear and joy, fear and joy all at one time, and Jesus. Uh, in in Hebrews, fixed his eyes on the cross for the joy that was set before him, so that you have, you know, we, we've got Jesus in the Gethsemane, right? If there's another way, uh, so I'm I'm feeling the pain and the sorrow, but I also have a, obedience and hope in my heart, that that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's part of what makes us different than my dog, right? Different than. And the rest of creation, I think that's part of the image of God in us. I know this is way down the rabbit trail from your sermon text, but that complexity, not to disagree with the philosophical term simplicity, that God is one and that he is not part wrath. He's not part wrath and part grace, and you just never know what you might get, right? God is simple. He's one. But in terms of complexity— I think you can look at the cross even and see in the moment he turns his back on his son. His son cries out, you know, uh, Father, where are you? But in his plan, in his knowledge and wisdom, this is the best thing that could happen, is the salvation of men for God's glory and the praise of his glorious grace. Uh, the worst thing is the best thing at the same yeah. time. So yeah. that's how it can it can be all those things. Otherwise, we have a God that is so simple, he can't, uh, again, not using the philosophical term, but so um, so limited to what he can be and think and uh, what he can judge 
uh, that he he can't take on the wholeness of the cross. Yeah. Right. He couldn't be uh, like like uh, with Joseph, what they meant for evil, you meant for good. It can't be that complex. Uh, yeah. I don't know. We're kind of down a rabbit trail here. I got a question for you. Okay. On your text, how much do you plan, especially on Easter, to bring in the quotation? At the end of that section, and, and what is it? What's it mean? Why does the Jesus? The whole enchilada, baby. <laughs> oh my gosh! Did, did, no. I feel like the podcast just got an hour longer. <laughs> uh, I, you know, what passage in, is that? Why does it matter? Well, so he, he, he there's some very interesting things about this, and I think it's been taken and abused to some degree. Um, he cites Psalm one eighteen twenty six there at the end. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And um, there, there has been a, a pretty common interpretation. I think that you find that where and and the interpretation itself will vary, but it's all part of the same school, which is um, to say whatever event he's referring to, you know. Um, he's talking about something that's hap- that's going to happen in the future. So whether that is the crucifixion, and some people will point to Matthew 26 and um, several other places mm-hmm. where he's talking about the crucifixion yeah. here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's when they're going to say it. Um, or he's talking about the parousia, the second coming of Christ, where he, well, they're going to come. He's going to come back and he's going to be received and and all of this. And and I don't think those things are completely absent of this text. But I don't think that's at all what he's talking about. Um, he mm-hmm. says at the very beginning in 30. Uh, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. So that is hmm. their history. They have been historically a people that has killed the prophets and people that were people of God that were sent to them to preach the basically the, what we would call the gospel of God's mm-hmm. kingdom. In the previous passage, he has just told them, Therefore, in verse 34, therefore I send you, this is in the future, I send you mm-hmm. prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on the earth. So he has told them, now you have killed, you will kill, and you will not see me again. Remember, he's standing in the temple. You will not see me again. In other words, you will not see the glory of God again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, until you receive a messenger bringing good news with joy, you will not see the glory of God again. So it's not a, it's not a prophecy about the future. It's a condition. Mm -hmm. You will Mm -hmm. not see the glory of God until you basically repent and receive the gospel joyfully. So there, mm-hmm. what bring what this to me this passage brings to mind is Ezekiel ten, the glory of the Lord departing from the temple, and what happens in the mm-hmm. very next verse. Jesus left the temple, mm-hmm. and so he hit the the presence of God is leaving the temple and will not come back to the temple, and the the power structure the uh, the jewish religion the the whole you know which last week i kind of explained i connected the jewish you know faith that's being condemned here really to the world's version of religion which is you know very 
Mm-hmm. I can I can do it myselfism, and um, and so what he's saying is the glory of the Lord is departing from you, and it's going to culminate. You know, you're going to see it in the res- in the death, burial, and resurrection. You're going to see it in the destruction of the temple. You're going to see it in the second coming, but it's going it's coming to an end, and you will not see the kingdom of God until you receive the gospel with joy. So it brings into mind Ezekiel 10, but it also brings into mind Matthew 13, 44 to 46. You know, the God, the kingdom of heaven is like, is a man, is a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found mm-hmm. in, 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 and covered up. And in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he owns to buy the field. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's that too. He's saying, unless you receive it like that, uh, then you're not going to see me again. So, I, tell me what you think about this. I, one, I think you just described what I think is a, a challenge for Pat. When you said, watch, he leaves the temple next, I was like, oh my gosh, there's so many moments in Scripture just came into play. Mm-hmm. And they're not the things that he's saying, but the movement out of the temple, if if that has the kind of meaning that you just described— then, yeah, who who would have thought of Ezekiel mm-hmm. in the latter half of Second Kings coming mm-hmm. into play here? Mm-hmm. And now it's like you feel like you have just picked up the this huge glory. Do you ever feel just like how can I, how can I possibly get this into a sermon? Yeah. Yeah. And, and honestly, my, so it's always, I think when, when you figure out, when you stumble upon this and you put these pieces together and I had help, I wasn't alone, but, but when you have, when you kind of put these pieces together, um, you know, I don't want people to think I was in my laboratory mixing something up and I'm like, I've discovered it, you know, or anything like that. I mean, you know, you have, you have people pointing you along the way. And if you're alone in your decisions, that's probably not a good place to be. Um, but I'm not the only one that has seen it like this, but, yeah. uh, I think when, when you hear that and when you read it, something clicks and you go, of course, that's what he's saying. That makes so much sense of everything else in Scripture. This passage but don't you, isn't. Don't you think alone. that's a challenge then? Because you're like, now I have just like re- more easily in Revelation. Maybe not so more easily, but now it's like the, the whole story of Scripture, from the Garden to the Temple, becomes your pericope. In right. A sense in, of, but of I, I think what I've always been helped by, and this may not, I think in pictures. And so often, right. I, th- I think, I guess, pictures or story, I think in, in like, in like these, these, just these images, like we were talking about your sermon in the personal in the cancer, in the dying of cancer in the hospital bed, you know, like, I, I just think in pictures like that. And so I, I, when I discovered this, when I put these things together, I immediately thought of Ezekiel 10 and so I, I think what's, what helps me to convey a complex, you know, passage like that is not to read the passage, talk about it, get to this point and say, you know, 
uh, let me explain all this and kind of basically look like the guy who's connecting all the red threads on the in the yeah. you know uh, yeah. solving yeah. a crime scene or something. But yeah, with the foil hat, yeah, yeah. But rather to start with the image of what Ezekiel is experiencing and what Ezekiel wants the people in exile to experience and what he wants them to yeah. to understand and grasp. And yeah. so my job then is to really make the audience, the congregation, feel that. Can you imagine uh, your forefathers discovering a portal into the throne room of God and that they have direct personal communication with God, verifiable communication, and that it is in one place and only you know where it is? And can you imagine that one day that communion is so sweet and then one day that communion is gone and that God Mm. just disappears entirely, that your life Mm. is thrown into, your life is in chaos and you are remembering what you once had and Mm -hmm. all you know is that God is gone and I don't know if he's ever coming back Mm -hmm. and I've done it, I've destroyed the one hope mm-hmm. that we really have. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is the feeling. This is what Jesus is con- communicating here. But the the blessing of the gospel then comes in because there is hope. He gives the condition until you say. And the way he mm-hmm. says this, which this kind of gets technically into the Greek and stuff like that, it's it's in the subjunctive mood that you say. So it doesn't mean that it's going to happen. It's not a prophecy that it is going to happen. He, it's a might condition. That's what the subjunctive mm-hmm. mood really is, is a might. And so he's saying, it, it, almost like we would use the word unless, unless you say, blessed right. is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So there's that condition to it that, listen, mm-hmm. all of this is happening. The judgment is coming. All the woes are going to be fulfilled. And the whole city of Jerusalem is going to perish until or unless you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what's interesting about this is that Matthew puts this here, whereas Mark and Luke put it before the triumphal entry. Because in the triumphal entry, the people say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yeah, and yeah. and the what what I think Mark and Luke are both showing that, and I'll explain Matthew's in a point in a minute. But what I think Mark and Luke are both showing is that this proclamation by Jesus is on the city of Jerusalem, and the Galileans who are praising Jesus when he comes in on a donkey, mm. he's they're basically saying like that. That's mm-hmm. how you receive a prophet who's bringing good news. Mm-hmm. Matthew is basically clarifying it. It's already happened. The triumphal entry has already happened. When he brings up blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, he's saying it's not happening again. It's not going to happen again until you receive a prophet like the Galileans did. It's not going to happen when again. When you put it like that, it's it sounds like you're saying this passage really concludes the woes by saying, but you guys are not going to do that. Right. You won't you won't receive me as the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Right. And then and, him leaving the temple is a sign of the finality of their judgment. Right. Yeah. That's a lot. Like, I'm tracking with you, and when you said that earlier, I started putting the pieces together that you just helped fill in. But that's a lot to, to preach. Do you feel like that? Like, how do you how do, you do that? Like, how do you, 
how do you just bring in everything you described, which is you just summarized. That's not even it. How that fits in the text. What do you think is your... Because it made me sound like you could almost... What Matthew has done is put 37 through 39 as the end of the woes. Mm-hmm. And that that's a pericope. Yes. Um, because the final judgment of the woes is, I came and you're not hearing me, and you will not have me. Uh, you, don't, you don't recognize me as one who's come, to, come in the name of the Lord, which is your, which, aside from the fact that you're hypocrites, you, you can't see me, and you don't recognize me. Um, so I don't know, when you feel like you have so much to put in, what, how do you make the choices? I mean, even because your, your passage is only three verses long. Right. <laughs> but it's got all this with it. I don't know. How do you handle that challenge when you feel like there's so much to say, so much backdrop scripture to bring in? You know, it is, it's always challenging when you have a really complex idea to get across. Plus, you add, the, add into that, it's, you know, Resurrection Sunday. It, there might be a lot of visitors that aren't there with the context and all that kind of stuff. But right. I think it is to put it in terms that, they, that people can understand that the glory of the Lord is departing the temple and he's concluding this proclamation of judgment on them by saying, I'm gone. And But I think it's to get to what Jesus is actually saying to everyone, what Matthew is saying by recording the words of Jesus here is mm-hmm. that repentance brings you into the loving embrace of Christ always. Mm-hmm. No matter no matter what your history, no matter what you've mm-hmm. done, repentance mm-hmm. is bring brings you in so even Christ here, who's just said all of these terrible things, and I don't mean terrible in like a bad way, but like terrible in, in the yeah. sense of fe- fearful or, or trembling yeah. kind of things yeah. to the Jews is still holding out even the possibility that mm-hmm. they could respond in repentance and that he would forgive mm-hmm. them. Um, mm. I mean, there's still that possibility even in there. And mm-hmm. while there's finality to it, he's leaving the temple. The temple is going mm-hmm. to be destroyed. I think that there's no getting around that. But mm-hmm. I think he, I think he, he would, he, I, I, I assume, and I, and I think this bears out in the text that if Jesus Himself were standing here, He would say, "They know what they have to do. They know, mm-hmm. they know. They've been told what the answer is. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. they supply their heart supplies the wickedness that you know brings about blindness. You know." And, mm-hmm. and those are complex. That, that right there is a complex theological, you know, juxtaposition, I think, that's, mm-hmm. that's difficult. But I think it's still, it's keeping, it's bringing it down to the simplicity of what he's saying. And once you get yeah. down to this is the heartbeat of what he's trying to communicate, your judgment yeah. while has been, has been proclaimed, yet this is the, the way in which yeah. uh, you will see the glory of God again which is wow. if you repent. And, and I think that, that then opens you up to be able to preach that because that's essentially what is the heartbeat of the text, you know, yeah. is that the, to see the glory of God, repentance is, is, is it, you know, is the key. Yeah. I'm going to give us this quote from Spurgeon kind of as a last thought 
tell me what you think. He says, um, it is not enough to be so plain that you can be understood. You must speak so that you cannot be misunderstood. I think there's, when I hear that, I'm like... Read that again. I, it is not enough to be so plain that you can be understood. You must speak so that you cannot be misunderstood. Yeah. Talking to pastors about growing in their preaching and lecture to my Man. students. Man. I just feel like that puts that raises the bar for me a little bit to be even more simple, to make sure. And I, and I do feel that. Like, I, I love getting questions on the sermon. I love it. I could talk about Scripture every day, all day. But there are times when I get a question where I think, man, I, I, I did not make that clear enough. Because you, you basically just told me you didn't get the point of the whole sermon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that was my whole point, you didn't, and you didn't get it. So that, that's on me for not being clear enough. And, you know, uh, I just thought that, is, that was a really helpful sentence. Especially when you're talking about like your passage or whether we're in Revelation or whether we're jumping into 1 Corinthians 15 for one week and jumping out, uh, being simple. Let me ask you this. On that, the, the simplicity then, do you think that means that sometimes, do you think that gives us some freedom, I think, to sh- show our work, show our math, so to speak, enough that it is that what we're saying is credible as from Scripture, right? So where did I get this? Where did I get my point? Let me show you. But then the freedom is to just preach it clearly and simply mm-hmm. and and not feel like I have to spend 40 minutes defending my position yeah. for my interpretation. It, it becomes freeing in a sense. Just go, go ahead and preach it. Just go ahead I, and proclaim it. I've, I've often found, I, I always heard in seminary, if it's a uh, mist in the in the pulpit it's a fog in the pew and yeah. um and I didn't know what that meant until I started preaching <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but uh you know I, when when I feel like man I've got so many things I got to get through it's going to be really difficult here I got to do this and I got to do that and all this kind of stuff I feel like I still have more work that I need to do on the text yeah until I get down to the real heartbeat of what is being communicated here. Mm-hmm. And once I get that and I really feel like I have it, then it simplifies the sermon entire. I mean, completely from top to bottom, mm-hmm. because yeah. now I can, I can preach what the author is intending the text to actually communicate and say, through all of these maybe complex symbols and if you're in revelation especially but Mm -hmm. i can preach the heartbeat and know that all Mm -hmm. of this text is supporting that and is going to be clearly heard at least Mm -hmm. or communicated from Mm -hmm. the pulpit and hopefully it's clearly heard in the pew um but you usually that's on me you know the goal becomes yeah the goal becomes preaching one sermon about one thing and not standing up and telling you all the things about this passage uh, as if my goal is to pass on information uh, in a whole grand scheme of all the information you can get from this passage that this is not a talk about how wonderful this 
passages, but it's a it's a proclamation of Jesus has died, is risen, come to him, be forgiven. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, man. Well, I'm excited for your Easter. I hope it goes well. Uh, I'm encouraged to listen to it. Really quick question. Did you listen to my sermon from last week? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We were talking about how long you um, take writing your sermon, and I added an introduction to my sermon sitting in the chair in in the service before the sermon started. And so I was going to get feedback on that maybe next week. Yeah. I uh, I have not listened to it yet, and I intend to. It is on my podcast list for sure. Um, so, well, we don't have time to talk through your podcast list, so I guess we'll see you next week. <laughs> Sounds good, man. Later. for listening to the Fire and Bones podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing or following the show on your favorite listening platform so you can be notified every time a new episode is released. Consider leaving us a generous review if that's an option for you. And most importantly, share this podcast with someone that you think might benefit from it. Be sure to check the show notes for any relevant links, including our contact information. Feel free to reach out to us with any questions you might have. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Fire and Bones podcast.